0: Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you guys. We're going to be in Numbers 13 and 14 this morning. Um Specifically, in just a minute, we're going to read in 14, starting in verse 39. And while you're turning there, like Sam said, uh, we've changed roles um, in the last year. Maybe you didn't even know what we used to do. And so about 12 years ago, um Parker and I, my wife and I, accepted a position with the IMB, the Southern Baptist Sending Agency, Um, to be church planters among the Songhai people in Niger, West Africa. The IMB is people group focused. Um, then about seven years ago, we became team leaders for that team. And then just this last year, we've moved into a different role. It's called a cluster leader. As Sam mentioned, we oversee about 14 countries in West and Central Africa. Um, as he also mentioned, that's about 434 million people that that covers. And almost half of the unreached people groups in all of Sub Saharan Africa live in the Great Bend Cluster. It's 292 unreached people groups, entire peoples with little to no access to the gospel. They make up about 100 million people in those 292 UPGs. Spread out across the Great Bend Cluster, as Sam mentioned, the Southern Baptists are one of the largest sending agencies, so you'd think, well, at least we've got folks on the ground helping out there. In the Great Bend Cluster, in those massive numbers, we have 28 families trying to reach all that lostness. And so... As we've come in now into this role and are trying to develop strategies and create vision for this, we realize that this task is too big for us. It's too big for the IMB. It's too big for American missionaries. Um, and so we are looking for partners, and we appreciate your prayers as we seek out partners from Brazil and China, South Korea, even partners there in our cluster. Some of Southern Baptist's oldest and most historical work is in the region we oversee now. They sent missionaries to Nigeria 150 years ago. And so we're trying to partner even with those brothers as we engage lostness, as we equip believers, and as we hopefully empower local churches towards the missionary task. So thank you so much for your prayers for us, for the peoples of the Great Bend Cluster. Thank you for giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, to the cooperative program that make it possible um, for my wife and I and about 3,000 missionaries across the world to do what we do. And then above and beyond that, Sovereign Grace um, helped us send a family to Nigeria that would be a catalytic partner as we try to engage Nigerian Baptists to help in this missionary task. Um, Sovereign Grace made a gift to us so that we could send a family there who's going to be an important catalytic role in helping us do that. So thank you for your gospel partnership. This morning, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Numbers. We're going to start um, Numbers 14, verses 39 through the end of the chapter. If you don't mind, would you stand in honor of reading God's Word? Numbers 14, 39. Moses writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when 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 that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Horma. Let's pray. Father, what an honor it is this morning to open Your Word with Your people with the hope and the expectation that You will conform us more and more into the image of Your Son, through the work of your spirit. So we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In Niger, where we've lived the last 12 years, one of the biggest threats that religious leaders will make to the people to scare them from following Christ is they'll say something like this, if you are to become a Christian, then when you die, no one will bury you. That might not seem like a a big threat to you, but for the Songhai people, this is huge and it's a real barrier that has kept a lot of people from following Christ. This was the exact threat that a man, some of you have heard the story of, a man named Ibrahim, one of my best friends, and his wife, Hure, they heard this countless times when they were following Christ. But to the dismay of these leaders and despite numerous threats, they continued to follow Christ with steadfast joy. Then uh, a few years later, Hureh, Ibrahim's wife, she got sick, she passed away. And it was like these religious leaders in the village there, they finally had the sermon illustration they'd been waiting for. So while Ibrahim's still in his grief, they gather a crowd at his home, and they begin to speak to this crowd, and they say, don't you see what happens when you follow this path? Now like, can't you see what happens when you abandon the faith of your father's death, curses? And then they turned to Ibrahim, and they said to him, Your foolishness has cost your wife her life. And while she ought to be left on the ground to rot like a donkey or a dog, if you'll return to the faith of your fathers, if you'll return to your senses, we'll help you bury this wife of yours. Ibrahim, this poor, weak farmer, he looked right at these men, the most powerful men in his village, and he said, if I have to bury her by myself, I will. But there's no way. I'm turning my back on Christ, Him who saved me and has given me life. It was an amazing thing. But then something incredible happened. One by one, others there in that crowd that day who had confessed Christ, but up until this point had been fearful to make that public out of fear of a moment just like this. One by one, they began to step out and they gathered around Ibrahim and together they went and they buried Hure's body. And something began that day that almost... Nobody noticed. These, these men, they had, had lost one community. That was clear. That was obvious. But what was less obvious, at least that day, was that they had found a new one, a better one. One that would endure long after the Songhai kingdom had faded. This little outcast group of some of the poorest people on the planet, they began to come together regularly around a common table, a common confession, They begin to make disciples. They begin to send out cross-cultural workers to sworn enemies. They they made disciples who made disciples who planted a church in terrorist-occupied land. See, that's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Something that starts out so small, so weak, so seemingly insignificant, begins to grow and mature until you look up one day and it's an unstoppable force. This is the way of kingdom advance. This is how Jesus said the kingdom of God would grow. It wouldn't come immediately with power and strength, but rather it's more like a mustard seed. It's like a little bit of yeast. There's mystery in the counterintuitive way that the kingdom advances. And kingdom advance is what we're giving our lives to there in Niger in West Africa. It's what you're giving your lives to here in Aberdeen. I hope you realize that. You're not just a group of like-minded people who happen to show up in the same place each Sunday. Instead, you are a kingdom outpost. So that what goes on in here with this particular body, when you assemble and when you are equipped and when you are sent out for the work of ministry, this is a testimony to this city and this community of what the kingdom of God looks like. So this morning, as we think about how the kingdom of God grows in the world, I want to suggest the following statement. It's going to kind of serve as our foundation this morning. And that is simply this. The kingdom of God, I believe, advances when the people of God believe the promises of God and go out with and in the presence of God. I think we see this truth all over the pages of Scripture. But where I want to focus our attention is the 13th and 14th chapter of the book of Numbers. Now, we're jumping right to one of the most pivotal moments, not just in the book of Numbers, but really in the entire history of God's people. So it's important we remember remember how we got here, which takes us all the way back to Genesis 12. You'll remember what happens there. God calls a a pagan nomad with a barren wife, and he says to them that your offspring, through him, all the families are going to be blessed. The Lord promises Abraham a great name, a great people, and a great place. It says Abraham's descendants will be more numerous than the stars, and they're going to dwell in a land that flows with milk and honey. In chapter 15 in Genesis there, at the beginning of this covenant, God says something interesting to Abram. There in verses 13 through 16, he says, this people, this people I'm promising you, they are going to be aff- afflicted. They're going to live as sojourners in a land that is not theirs for 400 difficult years before they return to this promised land. Then through incredible events in the lives of Isaac, Jacob, his sons, especially Joseph, God carries out his sovereign plan. The book of Genesis ends with the beginnings of this great people living as sojourners in a land that is not theirs, namely Egypt. The first two chapters of the book of Exodus, it covers 400 years. It shows this people of God suffering great affliction at the hand of the Egyptians. God hears the cry of his people for rescue. He remembers his covenant with Abraham. Then God delivers them from slavery. They cross the Red Sea. They receive the law. They construct the tabernacle. God gives them bread from from the sky. He gives them water from rocks. He leads them through the day by a cloud, through the night by fire. He does all of this until we get to the edge of the promised land where we come to our text this morning. Chapter 13, verse 2. The Lord says to Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. And so spies go in, and in verse 22, they, they go to Hebron. This is now the exact place that Abraham had been standing when God told him in Genesis thirteen fourteen to lift up your eyes north, south, east, west, all this land that you see I'm going to give to you and your offspring forever. The spies get to that spot where the promise began. And God has been faithful every step of the way, doing exactly what He said He would do. The spies return, they show the people the fruit of the land, they report that this is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. However, the spies say, the people who dwell in this land are strong. The cities fortified and large. Caleb stands up, he tries to intervene, but these other ten spies say, not only is this land full of dangerous enemies, they're giants. The people are upset by this report. They say they, they wish they had died in Egypt. Joshua stands up, joins Caleb now in a final appeal for the people to trust in God. He reminds them not to be afraid. He says, the Lord is with us. The people respond to this message by picking up stones to kill them. There's this incredible scene where Moses intercedes for the people. God receives Moses' intercession, but he declares a judgment. He says, no one who saw my glory, no one who saw his glory and the signs that he did in Egypt and in the wilderness will see the land that he swore to give their fathers. Because every person 20 years and older will die in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. And their little ones, the ones that they were so fearful would die here, they're going to be the ones who walk into the promised land. This announcement obviously saddens the people. So they determined, where we got to our text What I read, they determined to rise up for themselves and to go and to take this promised land. Yet the Lord is not with them. And this chapter, it ends with Israel defeated in battle, standing on the outside of the promised land, where they're going to remain for the next 40 years until an entire generation dies in the wilderness. Now, Now, why is this important for our time this morning? as we seek to give our lives to kingdom advance, we must be extremely clear in some areas that I think we've just seen Israel forget or forsake because I believe these are going to be the exact same areas that you and I will be tempted to forget and forsake. People of God, promises of God, presence of God. All of these must be present, and they must be present at the same time. You miss one, and it short-circuits the whole thing. So I want us to go through these each one by one. The first component, the people of God. This is about our identity. We we must know who we are. That sounds like a simple question, but this has led to much confusion over the years. Identity is critically important for us to understand And to best understand it, G.K. Bill suggests this. He says, to understand our identity, every Christian must ask God the same two questions that Moses asked God there in Exodus 3. You remember those two questions? He asked God, who am I and who are you? And the answer to that second question gives us everything we need to answer the first question. We can only understand ourselves as we understand who God is. In other words, true knowledge of ourselves only is found in true knowledge of God. God tells Moses what he's going to do. Moses says, I can't do this. What's God's response? You're not going to do this. I am. Like Moses' entire calling, his his whole identity wasn't in his abilities, but rather it was wrapped up in and an overflow of who God is. This isn't true just of Moses. This was true for the people of God as well. The people of God's identity should have been wrapped up in and viewed through the lens of who God is. But over and over and over again, what do we see? We see Israel in rebellion constantly, consistently, and their sin, however it manifests itself, it always begins the same. It always begins with them denying who God is, denying God's character which inevitably leads them to forsake who they are, forsake their identity. This is not the first time we've seen this play out. In fact, this echoes all the way back to the garden. This is how sin enters the world. I want you to see how this works in the opening chapters of Genesis. If you remember Genesis 1, we see this universal scope of creation. And every time we see the name of God, Moses uses Elohim to describe the God of creation. And F.F. Bruce says, Elohim occurs when the scriptures are referring to God as a transcendent being who is the author of the material world, yet one who stands above it. So Elohim, God in our English translations, that refers to an infinite and all-powerful God who is the creator of the whole universe. So this is an appropriate title, especially in Genesis 1, as we see just the wide scope of God's creation. But then you notice if you look in Genesis 2, Moses narrows the focus onto man and woman, not the entire cosmos. And there's a shift in the designation of God as well. Starting in verse 4, every time Moses mentions God now, it's always Lord God or Yahweh Elohim in Hebrew. Now, Yahweh, as you know, is the covenant God of Israel, the personal and intimate God of His chosen people. So combined, Yahweh Elohim is this robust picture of who God is. The all-powerful creator, sustainer of the universe, sovereign in every way, eternal, unchanging, but also the personal and intimate God of a specific people, His people, who He loves. So all through chapter 2, Moses speaks of the Lord God. We see it 11 times there, even chapter 3, the first time, Lord God. This is why the first recorded words of the serpent ought to be shocking to us. Like Moses is making a huge point in the text for anybody that's paying attention. Listen to the serpent's words. The serpent comes to Eve, the woman, and he says, Did God actually say? You see what's going on? Yeah, the serpent is trying to get them to doubt God's word, but notice the subtle way he goes about that. With an assault on who God is. Like The enemy intentionally refuses to speak of God as Yahweh Elohim, referring to Him simply as Elohim. Now remember, Elohim is an accurate term for God. He's not lying here, but it's a generic term that while it does describe his infinite power, it's not, it doesn't carry what Yahweh does, which is the personal, covenantal, intimate God. So, so look at the satanic deception. It, it seems subtle, but it's deadly. Our enemy seems to be okay with Adam and Eve knowing God as a powerful yet distant creator. He seems okay with that but he is working hard to have them doubt God's goodness and his intimate and personal love and care for them. His tactics work. Look at Eve's response. We can eat from the trees of the garden, but God did say, Eve also has Designated God without the name Moses is giving us there in chapters 2 in the first part of 3. Adam and Eve, they deny God's character. They forsake their identity. And we know they reject God's authority. And all creation falls with them. And now here we are so many years later and we see the same sin manifesting itself all over again. The people of Israel, their great sin in our text this morning, it isn't that they're fearful of the peoples of the promised land. Like Their sin isn't just that they're scared of giants. But rather, their sin begins with doubting who their covenant God is. Listen to their words there in chapter 14, verse 2. They say, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, will surely become a prey. They're beginning to deny who God is, deny his character. Do you you notice they make God sound out to be like a a cruel deity who's forced them from the comforts of their lives in Egypt to bring them to such a horrible place where he is utterly helpless to protect them and to provide for them. Like how crazy is that? Like Think of all that God has done for them and revealed to them. But they determined, just like their father Adam, this God is not to be trusted. So watch how this works. They deny God's character and immediately we see them forsake their identity. The very next verse, what are they saying to one another? It would be better to go back to Egypt and it would be better for us to appoint for ourselves a new leader. Like that would be better than to follow Moses into that land. Do you hear what they're saying? The people of God are saying, we'd rather be, Egyptians than Israelites. They've they've convinced themselves somehow it's better to be an Egyptian slave than the people of this God. They have fundamentally rejected and rebelled against their identity. They tell themselves this God is not good. He is not faithful. He is not in control. He is unable or unwilling to protect and provide for us. They deny God's character and they forsake their identities. And it's easy to look at them and say, how foolish of them. But what about us? What about you and I? I mean, we have received More revelation than these Israelites as God has revealed himself ultimately in Christ. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit living inside of us, guiding us, conforming us more and more. And yet, how often and how easy is it for us to begin to deny and forget who God is and therefore to forget who we are in Christ? Have you forgotten? Those of you this morning who have confessed Christ, have you forgotten who you are in Christ The Bible tells us God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He knows you intimately. He knows how many hairs are on your head. Have you forgotten that even when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, when you were clinging to filthy rags, when you were living as an enemy of God, deserving his righteous wrath, even in that state, God made you alive, giving you his only son so that you would not perish but have everlasting Life. Have you forgotten that in Christ you are now a new creation, a child of God, a co-heir with Christ? You are firmly in his hand and no one can snatch you out. Have you forgotten that in Christ you have full assurance of eternal life, like you will be raised from the dead at the coming of the Lord? He's preparing a place for you that where he is, you might also be. Have you forgotten that in Christ you've been saved by grace, justified by faith? Nothing can separate you from his love for you in Christ Jesus. He will never leave you or forsake you. Have you forgotten that in Christ sin is no longer your master? There's no, now no condemnation for you as all of your sins are fully paid for and forgiven. In Christ you are the righteousness of God. That's who you are. And yet, how often do we look at our current situation, our current circumstances, and begin to doubt that He's really good? Begin to doubt that He's really in control? To doubt that He sees me and is working all things, even my suffering, even my trials. He is working all of that for my good and His glory. Or maybe for some of you to even doubt that His grace is sufficient. That somehow it's, it's still up to you to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and to clean yourself off and dust yourself off and earn this salvation. See, those are all fruits from the same satanic root of the temptation in the garden as your enemy is seeking to get you to deny who God is and therefore to forget and forsake who you are. And when you do that, you'll find your identity in all sorts of places. I think Paul understood this temptation was real for Christians. I think he knew exactly how easy it would be for us to slowly and subtly drift away from who we are in Christ and begin to find our identities in all sorts of other things. And this is why his testimony in Philippians 3, as he begins to list all of these good things, and that's key. He's not talking about evil things there. He's not talking about bad things. If you read through the list, I mean, Paul talks about his Family heritage. He says, I'm from the line of Benjamin. He talks about his social status. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. His biblical knowledge. He says, a Pharisee. He talks about his religious activity, how he was zealous. He even talks about his moral lifestyle, that he was blameless. So family heritage, social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, moral lifestyle. These aren't bad things. But, as good as these things were, Paul understood that his identity was not in them and could not be defined by them. instead, his very next words in verse seven three chapter three, verse seven, he says, "But whatever gain I had, in other words, all the good that the world had to give, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of christ. it's all loss, and in case we didn't hear him, he says it again, indeed, I count. Everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says it a third time. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Like we got to understand and believe what Paul just said. Because he just took all the good things, Like all the valuable things in this life, all the things that you and I will be tempted to seek out and to try and find our identities in, and he called them rubbish. And that's our English translations being polite. He says, I would gladly lose all of those things. Why? Verse 10, so that I may know Christ. Like Christ was his life. Christ was his identity. Paul knew the only way to know who he is was to ever know deeper who Christ is. This is so important for us. It's so critical for us to get. Because here's the danger. You can have all the things in this world. You can have a good family life. You can have a a good name, good social status. You can even have biblical knowledge. You can have religious activity. You can have a good moral life. You can have all of that and still not have Christ. So here, Paul's pastoral plea to you this morning says, this is for your good. Like Paul knows if your joy and your identity is in stuff or status, well, that can be lost. That can be taken away or stolen. And Paul is showing us a radically different way to live. A sure way to have true joy and true contentment. Because when Christ is your life, when Christ is your identity, then nothing this world can do can rob you of your joy. It can't rob you of your hope. It can't rob you of your peace. Why? Because you already have those things in Christ. And nothing can take that away from you. Sickness can't take that away from you. Poverty can't take that away from you. Death can't take that away from you. Nothing can. First and foremost, so much so that it makes everything else look like rubbish. You are in Christ, the covenant people of God. We can't forget this. Otherwise, it will lead us to reject God's authority. And that brings us to the second component, the promises of God. This is a question of our mission. We must know what it is that God has called us to do. We have to know who we are, our identity, and we have to know what we're to do, our mission. So notice in the text, the people of God, they've denied God's character, they've forsaken their identity, and that immediately leads them to reject God's authority. They reject the plan of God, and they reject the man of God. They don't want to be the people of God, and they refuse to believe the promises of God. And in so doing, they have rejected their calling. In forgetting who they were, they've forsaken what God had so clearly called them to do. Remember, taking this land wasn't just about them. In fact, from the beginning of the promise, this was never just about Israel. God tells Abraham that through his offspring, all the families of the world will be blessed. God sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Why? So that they might worship me. Even in Exodus 19, it says they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Why? For the nations, like mediating God's blessings to the nations. Even Psalm 67, Lord bless us, make your face shine upon us. Why? So that your name might be known in all the nations. Taking the promised land wasn't just about them having a nicer place to live than Egypt. It was part of God's plan for his people to bring blessing to the world. To go back to Egypt now is to reject their clear calling, which was never about their comfort. It was never about their safety or their security, but rather was always about God's name being worshiped and praised among all the nations. They reject this. They forgot who they were. They forsook what they've been called to do. Again, remember these, these spies that went into the land, they're standing in Hebron. Like this is baffling. Where the covenant was given, where Abraham, Sarah, Rebecca, Isaac, Jacob, Leah, they're all buried right there. So right here, standing in the land of promise where the patriarchs to whom the promise was given are buried, the people of God say, we can't take this land. We won't take this land. And the Lord says to Moses in verse 11 that because these people don't believe him, Because they don't believe his promises. He says, I'm going to destroy them all. And he's going to make Moses into a greater nation. it seems that this is Moses' chance, right? To to get rid of these people, to get rid of these rebels, and, and to enjoy the promises of God without them. Moses doesn't do that, though, does he? Look at the text there. He pleads with God. He intercedes for these people. And notice how he pleads. This is key. Moses doesn't come to God and and say, but these people are really a good people. You just got to get to know them a little better. He doesn't say, but they're really genuinely repenting this time, not like the last 400 times. No, Moses doesn't plead with them based on who the people are. Moses pleads with God based on who God is. Moses comes to God and his case to show these people mercy is God's own name and God's promises. That's a bold prayer. Like to remind the God of the universe who he is and what he's promised. It's bold. That's exactly how God has designed prayer to work. Moses stands in the gap and intercedes and God answers Moses' prayer. And this is the potent testimony to the power of prayer. Our prayers, do you believe this? Our prayers affect the way God acts in this world. And I just wonder if there's some in here when I say that, might want to sit up and say, whoa, but what about God's divine providence? Like, isn't God in control of all things? Are you really saying my prayers and your prayers affect what God is doing in the world? See, I think even that question just reveals how deficient our understanding of divine providence is. Like, God wills ends and God wills means. Like this is why we must pray for the 2.9 billion people who have little to no access to the gospel. You must stand in the gap for them. God wills for the nations to know His name and God wills for His people to go and proclaim His name. Or as David Platt likes to say, God wills for the nations to see His power and He wills for His people to plead for that power. See, a right doctrine of providence ought to result in more praying, not less. If you you find yourself growing in theology and your understanding of doctrine, and that's causing a decrease in your prayer life, you are growing in the wrong direction. Psalm 147 says, the Lord delights in those who put their hope in His love. Like prayer is coming to God with the promises of God and calling for Him to be faithful to those promises. He delights when we do that. He delights in answering those kind of prayers. He delights in showing His faithfulness to His promises. Every day I just challenge you to pray that way. To pray trusting in His love, trusting His promises. Even this morning my old Joshua's project, People group apt. The unbreached people group of the day this morning was the Jat people of Pakistan. like 33 million people with no known believers. I'm just praying for them this morning. And I'm able to come to God with Revelation 5, 9 and say, the blood of Christ is purchased people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. The jet of Pakistan are included in that. Just standing in the gap, pleading with God with the promises of God. That we would pray like we really believe our prayers matter. That we would pray like we really believe that God has ordained our prayers to matter. Samuel Chadwick says, The devil fears nothing from prayerless work, prayerless studies, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our wisdom, mocks at our toil, but he trembles when we pray. The book of Numbers was was written down for the sons and daughters who would enter this land. It was written to remind them of the sins of their moms and dads, but it wasn't just written for them. It was written for generations that would come, the, the psalmists, the prophets, even the church in the New Testament, they would continually lament what happened here in Numbers 13 and 14 when the people of God didn't believe the promises of God. It was written down for you and I. God's promises and the, the mission of His people, It's unchanging. His glory being made known among all peoples. This is what he's called and invited us into, to leverage our lives and our resources to steward them well so that the glory of Christ will be made known among all peoples. That's our mission because that's what God's promised. He's promised comfort. He's not promised security. In fact, he says things like, you're going to be hated because of my name. Through trials and tribulations, you're going to enter the kingdom. He's promised suffering and affliction, difficulties and danger but he's promised that he's with us and that even in all those things that we would naturally reject and refuse, he promises that the kingdom is going to advance until one day every knee bows and every tongue confesses. That's what's been promised. So let's trust and treasure the promises of God because we trust and treasure the God of the promises. And that's this final component, the presence of God. This is a question of our resources, our our source of strength and power. We must know who we are, we must know what we've been called to do, and we must know how it is we're going to accomplish this task. We've seen these Israelites have denied God's character, which led them to reject God's calling. This inevitably leads them to minimize God's capacity. The ten spies, listen to what they say. These people are stronger than us. Like thinking this is a, a matter of their military might. Of course these people are stronger than them. And so are the Egyptians for that matter. Like This has never been about their strength. It's always been about their God who fights for them. But yet they still continue to look to themselves and not to God. And because of this, God says, judgment's coming, death in the wilderness. We see the people get saddened by this. They say to one another, we've sinned, we're, we're sorry, but, but here we are. We'll, we'll go and take up this land ourselves. As if suddenly now they believe the promises, suddenly now they want to be the people of God, but they're still looking to their own strength. Did you notice that? They say, here we are. We'll go do this. But even worse than that, notice what's really going on here, and this is the most tragic part of it all. The people of God seem to be okay to have and enjoy the promises of God, even if that means they don't have and enjoy the presence of God. Like That's, that's mind-boggling. They would accept the the blessings of God even if that means it's accepting them apart from the presence of God. sounds unthinkable. sounds just irrational, but it's a temptation for us as well. It's actually a gospel that's very popular here in this land. This notion of having the promises of God without the presence of God is being sold here and all around the world. Become a Christian, say this prayer, believe but don't repent, jump through a hoop, you get to go to heaven. But you don't have to live with God as your Lord now. Or what's just rampant on the continent that we live on in, in Africa, something known as the prosperity gospel. Like How twisted is that in some of the poorest countries in the world? Something called the prosperity gospel is exploding. It's peddlers of this gospel. They're, they're telling people that to come to Jesus so that they can get His stuff Like, use Jesus, manipulate him, treat his name and his blood like some sort of voodoo charm so that you can get the money, power, and status that you crave. sick. It's damnable. You don't come to Jesus to get his stuff. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. Like, he's the end, not a means. And standing on the edge of the promised land, the people of God have forsaken their identity. They've abandoned their calling. But they're still wanting to reap the blessings of God apart from the presence of God. They missed the whole point. Like, the presence of God is the blessing of God. We can't do anything without the power and presence of God. And we shouldn't want to do anything without the power and presence of God. And this is the message we see all across the pages of the book of Acts. These first believers, they remain utterly dependent upon and desperate for the Spirit of God. We see that beginning there, the day of Pentecost, This Jewish feast that brought together Jews from all over the world, celebrated 50 days after Passover. At this time in the first century, Pentecost was considered the anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It's a celebration of that moment when God gives his people the law. You remember there in Exodus 19 through 32, you have God descending on Mount Sinai with this huge noise and fire. It's this intense scene. People can't get near it. Exodus twenty through thirty one, God gives the law and instructions on the tabernacle. Then in th- chapter thirty-two, the people worship a golden calf. Judgment comes. And Exodus thirty-two, twenty-eight, there's this little note in the text. Moses commands the sons of Levi to strike down these rebels, and it says, That day about three thousand people died. So now here we are, first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. All these Jews are gathered in Jerusalem. They're celebrating and remembering those events when what happens in Acts 2? This huge noise comes down from heaven, fire descends, but instead of scattering people, it draws people in. It rests on the disciples. Peter stands up and preaches. And on that day, what happens? 3,000 people get saved. Peter stands up and preached, and all these Jews who are remembering a day, the giving of the law, when 3,000 people died by the fire of the judgment of God, 3,000 people are saved by the fire of the grace of God. That's why 2 Corinthians 7 8, Paul writes, the ministry that brought death was engraved in letters of stone, but the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious because it brings life. These disciples never forget this. Throughout the whole book of Acts, they remain desperate for God. And people in Numbers 13 through 14, they they forgot this, and it cost them. In fact, 40 years from now, or from this point, as a new generation is standing in this same spot, continuing to rebel and grumble just like their parents, even Moses will forget this, and it will cost him. Like Moses, who's done so much, been used by God so many ways, because of his sin, he also will die outside the promised land. Moses was not good enough. He was not the mediator the people needed. Someone greater was needed. And the author of Hebrews announces, one greater than Moses is here. And he has been completely faithful, perfectly faithful to the one who appointed him. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. In fact, it is the gospel that God confronts us most clearly with our utter inability to accomplish accomplish anything apart from him. Jesus says that in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. For any hope of kingdom advance, we need Jesus. If you're here this morning, you don't know him as Savior and Lord, you need him. You need to cry out in faith and in repentance, have mercy on me, a sinner, and believe. And for those of us in here who do know Christ We also need him. We need him working in and through us, forming us into the people of God, giving us the faith to believe the promises of God and indwelling us so that we might go out in the presence of God. What an incredible task. What an amazing privilege. Might this kingdom outpost give its life to see the advance of that here and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we just long for that day, Lord, when your kingdom covers the whole earth and even here and now, We want to see your kingdom come, your will be done, your name glorified here as it is in heaven. So God, I just pray that that this body would give their lives, give their resources, give their time, give their prayers towards that end. Would you do that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.